Startup Stories DSM features conversations with entrepreneurs in Greater Des Moines, Iowa, who share their stories of what worked and what failed on their entrepreneurial journey. This podcast is produced by the Greater Des Moines Partnership. More tips and resources are available at dsmpartnership.com slash business resources. I'm your host, Mike Caldwell, Executive Director of Entrepreneurial Initiatives at The Partnership. Brad Dyer, welcome to Startup Stories. Hatchlings is now 10 years old. And by the way, congratulations on that. I know a lot of game companies never make it 10 years. What's uh, what's new with the original Hatchlings game? Yeah, um, a lot, actually. Uh We've been very fortunate with Hatchlings to have a user base that stayed with us for those whole 10 years. And I think that's a lot about the staying power. I think, you know, you mentioned a lot of game companies don't last for that long. And um, a lot of game companies are very hit driven where they need to come out with that next big game every single year to keep going. Right. Um, and we have been able, fortunate to be able to build a long lasting business with the same set of users who have stuck around with us. And part of doing that is we come out with new content every day. We have new events every month. And so keeping things fresh has really been um, a big part of the success. And so we're going forward with that and launching new stuff all the time. That's interesting because a lot of gaming companies never did new content. It was like, here's the game, right? From my early days of those original arcade games, here's the game. And it never changed. So yeah, you'd get bored after a while. And it's mostly recently that people are adding adding content uh, on a regular basis. That's interesting. You were doing that 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, so we come out with a new egg release every single day. Um, and we've been doing that now for five years. Before that, it was a weekly content release. And what we found out was the more content we release, the more people play every day and the better that is for our business. Yeah. For the listeners, the, the Hatchlings is an egg. It's a find the Easter egg kind of game. And so new eggs every day. The, day, the egg art is fascinating to me. I've seen, you've had a number of artists work for you and I've seen some just beautiful artwork in those. Yeah. That's actually been one of the most rewarding parts about um, running Hatchlings is that we can support all of these artists. So we've been actually been doing a guest artist program for the last couple of years. Um, and a lot of those are local artists that are doing illustrations for the game on a one-off basis. And some of those have, uh, you know, continued on. If we get great artwork, then we're happy to give them more work and keep supporting the arts. You know, it just occurred to me, you do a lot of really cool stuff to support charities. I saw the other day you were supporting another one. Have you ever thought about doing an, an art sale, a Hatchlings art sale? I think I'd buy one. I yeah. can see a little 12 by 12, you know, nice little frame and have all the proceeds go somewhere because there's some really special art. Some of those pieces would be worth a lot. Yeah, that would be really cool. Uh, physical products are really hard, as you know. So like that, yes, that doesn't scale. <laughs> if you're selling one item to one person, that's that's really hard to raise a lot of money. Um, but we have had a lot of success doing like online fundraisers. So we were able to raise $12,000 for um, Pi 515, which provides tech training to yeah. local like refugee kids and underprivileged kids in Des Moines. Um, and so that's been really cool to be able to leverage our global community to make changes right here at home. Yeah. So you launched a new game uh, not too long ago called Puzzlings. Um, tell us what Puzzlings is and then how's that going? Sure. Uh, it's a jigsaw puzzle game. Um, it's been over two years now since we launched that game. Um, and it's been interesting that that is another game that we have launched that has had long long success between uh, of retaining users. Um, so with that game, we release a new puzzle every day as well. And I okay. think that's kind of like our secret sauce is that releasing new content every day keeps people coming back every day. Um, and so we now have just about as many users in hatchlings or in puzzlings as we do in hatchlings. Wow. Um, and so that's a big opportunity for us going forward. We're going to try and grow that revenue base to match hatchlings as well so that we're not right. so lopsided on the one game. Right. It, it is, it's interesting. Um, 
the daily content thing would scare most entrepreneurs. I, I just think a lot of people that are first-time startups, you know, they want to build it once and sell it forever. That's the mantra of reoccurring revenue. And you're basically building a company that needs touching every day of the year. And yet, if you build the right processes and mechanisms, it could be straightforward. But I can yeah. see where it scares some people it's, off. It's interesting to kind of look at what we do as like the tech side of things is building a content management platform. Basically we're building a way for us to release this new content and get longevity out of it. And then we also have the tech, the content side that is producing stuff to go into that content management system. So it's, yeah, it's really like a a horizontally vertically integrated model where we're doing both sides of that. And then, you know, building one product for the users and the users don't really, I think understand that like, overall machine that we're building necessarily they just know that it's fun and they get new stuff and get new features and that things keep going yeah but that's what it's supposed to be i mean to me if you're a consumer i don't really want to hear how hard it was to do something or how complex it is or i mean unless you really geek out on that kind of stuff it's just like okay it works and it was really enjoyable great thank you yeah they don't need to look behind the curtain necessarily don't need to show me what's behind the curtain exactly so how's the company changed hatchlings i mean how's hatchlings changed the last couple years you started traveling a while back and you changed the way you ran the company when you were traveling. Can you talk about what you did? Yeah. So I think one of the biggest things for me has been trying to figure out how to make myself not as um, integral of a component to the company. Um, so there's several reasons for that. Um, and one of those is just like, if I get hit by a bus, I want to make sure that the company is going to be able to continue on and go forward. Um, so that's kind of a longer term plan for us and um, something that we've been working towards. So um, actually, so the goal is over the next year to move somebody else into the CEO position. Um, we have a lady who's been working for us that um, that's like our goal for her is to move into a leadership position. And then we're also hiring developers to take over a lot of my programming work that I've still been doing. um, So that basically it frees me up where if I got hit by a bus, the company hopefully wouldn't even blink. Yeah, that's it. It's important. Continuity of business is a big deal. As people grow startups, it's something that when you're really just a startup, you would never think about that. Most people wouldn't. But especially as investors, as an angel investor, it's, I definitely want to think about the continuity of the business because yeah. it's founders matter. When you were the only coder for Hatchlings, that was kind of a bad place to be in the investment. Not that you took investors, but as an investor, that's a bad thing. Yeah, and not only that, but as employees, I think that gives them a lot more, um, you know, confidence and job security and, you know, decreases the stress level knowing that, you know, it, there's not this one key component of the company that could go away at any day. Yeah. If you change your mind, it's all done. Well, and I think also people want to know there's someplace to go if they want to move up. Some do, some don't, but it's, it's nice to know. I mean, I, 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 I think what you're doing is great to try to expand it out. You just fished, finished up Hatchling's Game Jam last weekend. Uh, what was your goal? Why, why, why did you do Game Jam? Yeah. So, um, Initially, it was kind of a selfish goal. We were trying to hire a developer and we were having, what we realized was we haven't really developed this pipeline of people that we have ongoing relationships with. So when we decided we wanted to hire a developer, we didn't have, you know, a group of people to go to and be like, hey, like we've known you for X number of years and like we have this opening, like are you interested in joining us? Um, A lot of that community didn't even know that we existed, um, much less like have like this like burning desire to come work for us. so in realizing that, we started thinking about like, okay, how do we go about expanding out the technical side of things? And, um, you know, we did a lot of the traditional things, which were putting out job listings and going out and trying to find people. Um, and that was really, really hard. Like the we had 150 candidates come through the door. Uh, 75 of them were 
just seemed like scattershot. I'm applying for every single job in the entire country. They had no connection to Iowa. They didn't write a cover letter. It was just like they could have been submitting the resume to every single company in the country. Um, And then from the rest of those, we narrowed it down to 15 people that seemed like good candidates to interview. Um, We interviewed them and picked four people out of that that we thought would be strong uh, fits with the company and um, that we wanted to move to the next step, which was a technical interview. Right. And um, from that, we only had one that we were interested in pursuing and uh, he was way outside of our price range. And so what we we went back to the drawing board and we were like, okay, so if we're going to start this process again and keep looking for somebody, um, we need to do something different than what everybody else is doing. Um, and so we initially came up with the game jam as a way of getting a whole bunch of people to know about hatchlings and who we are and that we exist and that we're a fun group of people to work with. Um, so that was the initial like thought process. And then it just kind of snowballed into this huge, sort of undertaking where, you know, it's taken up a majority of our time for the past three or four weeks, just planning this thing. Right. Um, and kind of the, the rationale for the game jam was we had talked to a technical recruiter and, uh, it turns out they charge like 30% of the person's first year salary. They do. So yeah. if you're talking about paying somebody 20 to $30,000 to bring somebody in the door that you're going to hire, um, what we, you know, talked about internally was, well, you know, one of our strengths is creativity. Right. How can we spend that twenty or thirty thousand dollars a lot more creatively to find somebody who might want to work for us and also have secondary benefits and tertiary benefits in the community? Right. Um, and so, looking long term, um, we want to do a few things. We want to build up our tech pipeline of people who know about us and might want to work for us someday. But we also want to build up the gaming community around town so that you know it, it becomes a hub of someplace that people want to work on games and, you know, you're developing that whole ecosystem around it. So similar to how we're interested in developing the startup ecosystem, the gaming ecosystem is something that we wanted to help develop as well. Um, and also just, we had a lot of the, the team had never been to a startup weekend. And I think that, um, the ones of us who had thought that was really positive for the Des Moines community to have a right. hackathon where people are getting together. And we've seen the positive benefits for the community of having events like that. And so the culmination of like all those ideas, it was like, this is a no brainer to throw this event. And we got, um, so, the, so I, I don't think I really covered what, what the event is, but it was yeah. a 36 hour event where people come together, form teams on Friday night, work all through the weekend and should have a finished game by Sunday. Um, and yeah, that it, it went, it, well, it exceeded our plans um, tremendously. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about this a little before we started the podcast. It uh, it wasn't just uh, electronic-based or computer-based games. You had some board games, too. Yeah, uh, we had some great board games. Um, so part of the interesting thing about um, games is that it, it's a multidisciplinary um, field. And so you have everybody from computer programmers to artists to sound engineers. Um, and w- we brought all those people together under one roof and... Um, I think it was three teams, maybe four teams created a board game instead of a computer game. And there's a lot of similarities between them, but also a lot of differences, but it's, it tends to attract the same types of people with different interests. It's the same mindset of, of liking the engagement of the game process. And I think mm-hmm. it's why, you know, people I, my age didn't grow up, well, I grew up with computer games, but a lot of my peers didn't, um, don't, they don't understand the compelling aspect of gaming, but it is very compelling. And there's a lot of people who find it mentally stimulated and across the board. So, so did you find a programmer? Um, we actually stumbled upon a programmer before the game jam. Um, and we hired him the week before. Uh, and interestingly, uh, his number one reservation about starting to work for us last week was, 
I heard the uh, Hatchlings team members aren't allowed to participate in the game jam, and I was really looking forward to that. If I take this job, does it mean I can't do the game jam? <laughs> That's pretty funny. Did you yeah. let him? Uh, we kind of, so I participate, participated too. We told him, he could participate, but he wasn't eligible for a prize as a Hatchlings well, team cool. member. And yeah, I think right. he had a lot of fun, learned a lot. Um, he So half of the team was focused around him as the developer of one game, and the other half was around me as the developer of another game. And we both came up with our own games over the weekend, too, nice. so that was kind of fun. Nice. Well, you know, it's interesting because a, a lot of startups are dealing with, how do I find more resources? We got a little bit spoiled in that right after 0809, there were a lot of people on the street looking for a job. And then even after that, a lot of people were nervous about jobs and companies were still struggling. So there were a lot of people, their candidates for jobs. Now we're in a, a full economy situation where you're not going to go out and find the people you need. You just aren't. And companies are having to adapt to new ways of bringing on people earlier that are not as fully trained and doing a lot of the training themselves. I mean, look at AI. There, there's not enough AI people by a factor of, what, 100 um, to go around all the new AI jobs that are being created. So we're going to have to train and educate those people. Do you do things like that at all? Are you looking at um, how you take somebody that maybe doesn't have all the experiences and bring them to a level you need? Yeah, um, that's something we're still trying to figure out. Um, but it's it's been interesting going through this process. Um, the guy that we ended up hiring had less experience than we thought we were looking for. Um, but he has such a high ceiling and he's such a quick learner that I think he's going to get there really quickly. Um, and we... He's kind of a non-traditional candidate. It was something right. somebody that a lot of other people overlooked, um, and he was just kind of here in Des Moines. And I think it helps that we're a games company. And so one thing that we figured out is we want to really look for people who hatchlings is their dream job. You know, they're not just right. like a mercenary looking for any sort of programming job or the programming job with the the highest salary. They want to work for us. Right. Um, and we feel like if we can find those people, we can invest in them over the long term because we can have confidence that you know if we give them an engaging work environment that they'll stick with us for a long time. Yeah. And that's been proven over and over. It's, you know, salaries do matter, but it's not what keeps people there. I mean, it's, if they're engaged and enjoying what they're doing on a team, they like the likelihood they're going to look at an offer coming across the table is very, very low. So you, you, you had a call for games for good when you put this out. How do you feel about the result? Yeah. So that was actually something that the hatchlings team came up with. Uh, I wasn't really involved in that decision, so I don't know, why they came up with that. I think it was spawning around that, um, you know, the secondary and tertiary benefits that we were talking about. I think one of the things that they were thinking was, you know, if these games could have some deeper meaning or or something like that, that could be another one of these secondary benefits. Um, And I was kind of skeptical about that at the beginning. I was kind of brainstorming, like, what would be a game for good? I didn't really necessarily have any ideas myself. Um, But I'm really, really happy that we did that because we had a couple games that really were like they they took that theme and ran with it so actually the winning game um, was an alzheimer's simulator Um, so you walk into a room and there's this shadowed silhouette of a person and the concept of the game is that you have alzheimer's and this is somebody that is from your life but that you don't remember and so the, Mm -hmm. the point of the game is you have to go around the room and you're reliving memories from your life and you have to piece together who you are and who this person is. Oh my gosh. Um, and so it really, like I was choking up playing this game at the end of the weekend. It like really puts you in the shoes of somebody with Alzheimer's. And I think their vision for it is to partner with like the Alzheimer's Association to use it as a way to help them explain to family members, you know, what their loved right. one is going through, but also to help inspire people to give donations to help cure that disease. So they kind of exceeded your team's expectation on games for good. Yeah, absolutely. There were several games that had, you know, this uh, kind of underlying um, cause that they were trying to either bring attention to or 
um, try and help alleviate. Nice. That's great. So you said that the, the one game that won the recognition top honors was Alzheimer's. Were there any other awards for any other types of games? Did you have categories? How'd the, how'd yeah. the quote unquote, I hate the word winners in one regard, but I love it in another. Uh-huh. Um, how was it? So we, we kind of struggled with that because there were so many great games. Um, and we left it, we didn't really know what we were going to get at the beginning. So we kind of left the categories free form. Okay. Um, and what we ended up with during the judging was we all, the, the thing that we could all, agree on was we came up with three categories. We gave out the best game for good, um, which went to um, a board game. um, It was called Ew Gross. And she made this game over the course of a weekend that was um, a trash collecting game. And it was about like recycling and, you know, collecting trash out of like ponds and that sort of thing. And it was a really fun game that uh, we had people come in on Sunday to try and demo the games. And there was like a line to try this game because everybody was having so much fun playing That's that a board good sign. game. Um, and then we also gave out the best board game, um, which went to um, a guy that created a game. It was called Hive Mind. And it was like a beehive simulation game right. with cards and dice. Um, that was also really fun. That game was so well-developed that I think that he could just package that and sell it right now. Um, he's... He, I asked him if he was going to continue on after the weekend. He said, yeah, he's going to look for a publisher to actually make that into a real product, which was pretty cool. Wonderful. And then we gave out the top prize, which was um, best game overall, and that went to the Alzheimer's simulation game. Nice. So are you going to do Game Jam again, do you think? Yeah. Um, I, I should never ask that. I asked Ben Milner if he was going to do monetary again right after he got done, and he just kind of looked like, yeah, you're so worn out after you do something like this. It's like the wrong time to ask somebody. Yeah, but. I think EB has already said that she wants to do this again next okay. year. Um, I think – so it's hard on the one side because – it's almost like we're too hungry to eat, right? I, I mentioned that one of our, our motivations for this was to hire a developer. And the reason we need a developer is because we need to, we like, we want to do more things than we can. And so mm-hmm. spending so much time on an event like this is almost a distraction from our core mission. But right. um, it's, it's a more long term play where we're trying to develop those relationships so that in the future we're able to do a lot more things and hopefully can develop that community and develop the company more. And I think, um, like I said, you know, our expectations were exceeded and I think that it would be silly of us not to do this again. Um, I think it really helped build our brand. It helped build awareness of the company. And we had several people who had so much fun at the game jam that they even applied for a job already this week. Nice. Nice. Well, it is the challenge with, you can invest money, which is it's, if you have the money, it's easy to write the check and you can invest your own time. And that's a lot harder to invest, but they're both investments, right? You're still investing. Yeah. And you're rather than writing the check for one person, you're investing in building an ecosystem that will keep paying back. Yeah. As a startup, I think we have to really figure out what our leverage is. And oftentimes it's not money. There's always going to be companies who can write a bigger check than us. Um, so we have to be more creative about, um, how we build our company and how we, um, how we grow. Yeah. Well, and the funny thing is those people that write those big checks tend not to be the ones people want to work for. It's the mercenaries that are there and the people that say, I've got to just go earn the most I can for whatever reason. So changing subjects a little bit, you won a Golden Kitty Award from Product Hunt uh, for your augmented reality app, Magic Sudoku. Um, Why did you build that app? Um, I'm just kind of a naturally curious person and I I like to build new things and experiment with new technology. And so last year when Apple announced their um, AR kit, which is their augmented reality library, um, it just kind of got my gears turning about, you know, what could be built with this? How will, how will this change the way that we interact with computers? And so um, I went through this brainstorming process last summer of like, you know, what could I build with this? It would be really cool. 
Um, and I ended up coming up with this idea to, to build a Sudoku solver. And the reasoning behind that at the time was just, it was the intersection of like, what is now possible that wasn't possible before and what, what am I capable of building? Sure. Um, and so it was a mashup of computer vision, machine learning and augmented reality. Um, and it ended up take kind of like, taking the world by storm almost. Yeah, you did. Cause I was sending you, I, I have uh, some press clipping systems, uh, you know, digital ones out there and you were getting hits all over the world. Yeah. We, uh, game. we got featured in fast company. We got to the front page of Reddit. We were the number one post on Imgur. Um, we were on nine gag, like all these. And then not to mention all the tech websites that I read that covered it. Right. Um, it, w- it was a whirlwind of like, a week or two where we were just you like had your all 15 over the days place. of fame versus 15 minutes. Yeah, so. it was crazy. The vi- so the video demonstrating the app got viewed over 5 million times, 5 million. Yeah. Um, unfortunately wow. that didn't translate to 5 million downloads at 99 cents a piece. Well, uh, yeah, there's that other part about making money, right? Yeah. Um, but looking forward, I think, um, you know, almost accidentally I stumbled upon something that could be a lot bigger than that. And so, um, augmented reality and computer vision has been an area now that I'm super passionate about. And I think that, um, you know, I think that's a big part of the future. And so I'm trying to figure out, um, you know, where do we go from there? You know, we got, we found this kind of nugget of an idea and how do we develop that further into something that, um, you know, could hopefully change the world. And so that's what I'm passionate about working on going forward. Neat. So for those who don't know, golden kitties are a big deal. Um, I, a lot of people around here, I know when you won that, were like, they were thought it was a joke. And it's like, no, Elon Musk has one of these. This is, if you're a products person in the, in the world of the internet, getting a, a product hunt, Golden Kitty is like the Academy Awards. So what does it mean to you to have won this? Um, yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, I, I, product hunt's a web- website that I frequent and, um, to be recognized by them as the top augmented reality product of the year. Um, it's a pretty big honor and we have that trophy in our office now. Um, yeah. and it's cool that Elon Musk also has one on his yeah. bookshelf. Like yeah, he does. That's, that's a, a neat club to be a part of. You're in, you're in rare company. That's hard to do. What other AR apps have you built? Um, so the second one that we launched was called nose zone. Um, and it uses the, uh, true depth 3d sensor on the new iPhone 10 to create a face controlled game. Um, and that one, uh, it's only available on the iPhone 10, but we've now gotten close to 20,000 downloads of that app, which is pretty cool. Um, we have one in progress called Facelings that is kind of Snapchat-esque where you put these face filters on your face and it can turn you into different animals and it uses the 3D sensor so that um, like if you raise your eyebrow, the, the face of the animal also raises its eyebrow. Nice. So we're looking at potentially launching that sometime soon. Um, and then I've also been doing some more... Um, experimental tech demos and just kind of releasing videos on Twitter um, just to kind of get a feel for the technology. And, you know, I use it as a way of brainstorming Um, instead of writing something down on paper. I'll just go and explore in a code base and figure out what cool things I can do. Neat. So there were a lot of announcements out of Apple at the recent developers conference around AR. What's your take on where Apple is going with AR? I think it's pretty clear that they're working on AR glasses um, and they're one of many companies that are, that see that as a version of the future. Um, so there's rumors that most of the big tech players are working on um, augmented reality glasses. Um, it, it's interesting because um, there's, there's this hype cycle around augmented reality right now, but right. I think a lot of the real killer apps aren't going to be um feasible until the form factor changes from the phone. And so mm-hmm. um, one of the interesting uh, things that I've been thinking about a lot is 
what is the intersection of the things that are going to be transformative in the future with the things that also would be useful in the current form factor that we have available um, so that we can start working on those things now so that when the technology is ready, we can jump right in and be one of the market leaders. One of the things that caught my eye was the app called Measure that allows users to gauge the size of real-world objects. It sounds like a really useful technology uh, to have in many environments. Is Measure something that can be used from within other AR apps? Measure is interesting because um, it was – so last year – Besides Magic Sudoku, one of the other apps that got a ton of attention um, was a, a measuring augmented uh, reality uh-oh. tool. Yeah, and so they made a strategic mistake of the week after um, Apple announced their new developer kit, they released a video of this measuring tool. And the problem was, by the time the software became available to the general public, five or six other people had copied that app, and so they flooded the app market. Oh. Um, and they were, it was cool because it was a use of Apple's technology that it didn't seem like Apple hadn't, had imagined. Somebody else saw what Apple had built and then built this really cool app on top of right, it. Right. You know, they figured out that it was accurate enough that it could do measurements in three dimensional space. Um, and so there's a term in the Apple development world called being Sherlocked, right. um, which back in the day, or earlier days of the Macintosh, there was this really cool search app called Sherlock and uh, Apple built it into their operating system in the next version and basically killed that startup. And so all of these uh, augmented reality measuring apps are saying on Twitter that they've now been Sherlocked by Apple. Sherlocked. It's it's a verb now. The reason it was so compelling to me, I used to work in the logistics and distribution space. We built handheld computers for things like uh, pickup and delivery applications. And if you're talking about UPS or uh, some of the less than truckload freight companies, measuring the size of what you're working with is a critical issue. And if you think about the number of boxes a UPS or a FedEx ships every day, think about measuring three dimensions and keying that in. That is so much time and it's so fraught with error. I can imagine the the shipping people are going nuts over this right now because it's a it would be a huge savings if they can get that down into something small, lightweight, mobile. Yeah, for sure. Interesting. Um, so I understand the new AR two kit, AR kit two, will allow multiple people to share the same AR experience in real time. That sounds a lot like a lot of new games in the making to me. Uh, how do you see this affecting multiplayer games? Um. I don't think I actually told you which what app I built over the Game Jam this weekend. You didn't tell me. Am I about to find out it's a multiplayer game? Yeah. Uh, so I installed the new iOS 12 beta that has ARKit 2 specifically so that I could experiment with multiplayer augmented reality. Um, and what I built was a dual game. So you, you set up your two iPhones and they're sharing the same virtual world. And each one of you has a revolver controlled by your gun in three dimensions. And mm-hmm. since you, you share the virtual world, you can actually see your opponent through your screen. So the idea is you stand face to face, then you turn around, take 10 paces and you'll draw and then you spin around and you have to you have a duel with the the person with the other phone. Did you name it Hamilton? No, <laughs> I, I hadn't seen it. You know, people have said that. I haven't seen Hamilton yet. Maybe in a couple of weeks. Well, I read I'll, the book. I'll understand that reference more. <laughs> yeah, okay. um, but yeah, it, it's uh, it's super powerful and it's amazing to me how quickly this AR kit technology is developing going from, you know, the very basic um, AR kit beta that they launched a year ago to AR kit 1.5, which came out um, this winter, which included things like 2D object detection. So you can imagine being in a museum, pointing it at a painting, and it would be able to overlay things because it would recognize, recognize that image. Sure. To now AR kit 2 has things like multiplayer where multiple devices can share the same virtual world and it can do 3D object detection. So you could say like, um, you know, here's a Coke can and it can identify a Coke can and, you know, shoot things out of it. Um, I think Apple has the same 
I, I don't want to say Apple has the same idea as me. I have the same idea as Apple. Like, I'm it's sure okay. they thought they don't about have it. all the ideas. They, they thought about it years ago, I'm sure, and they've been working on it. Um, but the mashup of computer vision with augmented reality, I think, is going to be super world changing. Um, and it's amazing to me how quickly that field is developing. And you know, two years ago, if you had shown me one of these apps, even as a you know somebody who tries to stay on the forefront of technology, I would have told you, I would have been like, that's fake. There's no way. Like, we're just not right. there yet. We're not there yet. But we've gone in the course of two years from not being possible at all to having a team of PhDs release a research paper on some of these machine learning, augmented reality, computer vision things to now it's productized. And at the Game Jam, I was working on um, downloading computer vision models that use neural networks to do things like 3D object recognition in the real world. So you can now, your your phone is now learning what it is looking at and it's going to change everything. I mean, if you just look at one of the, one of the things that I think is going to be most transformative for society, which is augmented or sorry, self-driving cars. Right. Um, a self-driving car is really just a whole bunch of sensors that are doing computer vision and you tie those to mechanical actuators, which is the motors mm-hmm. of a car. And that makes those two technologies combined are making something that is going to be transformative for the way that cities work, mm-hmm. the way that logistics works. It's just going to be huge. And that's just one example of computer vision tied with another industry. Right. Um, and so the thing that I'm interested in is computer vision tied with augmented reality. Like what, what happens once your device knows what it's looking at? Right. Um, and if you look around us at a lot of the things that humans have been doing for the last several thousand years, it's taking something that isn't particularly smart in and of itself and using our, our computer vision, which is our eyes and our brain right. to make it smart. So, the simplest example would be like a cup, right? You have a cylinder that's empty and it doesn't really have any utility in and of itself until a human realizes, oh, this can store liquids. And Mm -hmm. by tipping it, then the liquids will fall out. And that all of a sudden turns it from a cylinder into a cup. Mm -hmm. And so the way that humans make things smart is by looking at them with their eyes and using their brain to determine what features it can have. And now that computers are understanding what they can look at, we can give... um, objects more abilities by recognizing what they are and interacting with them right and to the point of objects interacting with objects via ai yeah Yeah. so so i guess that's kind of like my takeaway from sudoku is traditionally we make things smart by putting a microchip in them right? right your smart thermostat is a thermostat with a microchip but if you look at magic sudoku what it's doing is taking a piece of paper a Sudoku puzzle and making it smart, not by putting a microchip in the computer or sorry, a microchip into the Sudoku puzzle, but by looking at it with a camera that understands what it's looking at and using software to make it smart. I was going to ask you where you see things going, but I think you just laid it out for us. Any other things in the, in this whole AI or AR space that you, we need some more acronyms to start with a, by the way, (laughs) in the AR space that are interesting you. Um, Yeah, there's a whole bunch of them. I don't think I necessarily want to go into all of them, but um, I think making dumb things smart with computer vision and augmented reality is going to be a theme of the next couple of years for me. I think there's 100,000 ideas out there already. I mean, this is an area where I think startups have to start looking because there's only so many business apps you can write. I mean, there's only so many things, and a lot of things are getting written are the rewrite of something from 10 years ago. And it's time to be looking at some new ways of solving. So to me, it opens some new doors. Have you seen what Boeing's doing with augmented reality and their manufacturing facility? I've seen a couple different variations of it, and that absolutely fascinates me because the highly complex assembly 
uh, is a, a major issue point. Yeah, they, they had, I don't know if it was a research paper or an article that they came out with where they were using computer vision to and augmented reality to help the people on the factory floor correctly wire aircraft for wings. So which it would label which wire was complex. supposed to go where. Yes. And yeah, that's a technology that can save lives. Right. It is. It, it absolutely can save lives. Um, what are the current limits on, on AR from a developer standpoint? Um, some of them are, are hardware limits and some of them are software limits. So there's a rumor that the new iPhone this fall is going to have um, a LiDAR system um, where it's going to use lasers to get a 3D model of the room. So right now, um, all of the augmented reality uh, stuff is based on just a, um, a camera and right. using machine learning to kind of create a rough 3D model of the room around you. Right. Um, once they add in hardware, um, it'll make it a lot more powerful. So right now, um, ARKit apps basically can only detect flat surfaces. You can only interact with the table or the floor or the wall. Um, if they add that hardware in, it'll be able to do 3D scans of things, and you'll be able to interact with the world in much more um, granular and realistic ways. So I think that's going to be, on, on the hardware side, that's the next step. And on the software side, um, if you follow the computer vision research, that's a field that every week there's a new paper coming out of right. you know computers that are now able to do something that they weren't able to do before. Absolutely. Um, I'm trying to follow it. I can't keep up. I mean, seriously, I can't yeah, keep up I with the reading. I don't think anybody can keep up. Mm-hmm. It's just moving so fast. Um, and that's, that's so cool to be in the middle of that um, because it, it's not very often that computers – are able to do new things. They're able to right. do the things that they're good at doing better oftentimes, and they're applied to new verticals. But computer vision is a and machine learning is a field where you know computers used to be good at dealing with numbers, right? They could do right. calculations, and then they got decent at doing like text. Um, they got a lot more powerful with the internet, and now that they're able to do things with images and start to understand images, and they're starting to understand, be able to look at text and understand like sentiment analysis from that and do pose estimation on human bodies. Like they're able to, it's, it's enabling new fields that computers can interact yeah, in. And then you combine, coming. Yeah. Yeah, you combine that with all, with every single vertical. And right. we're almost in this new computer age We're we're back in the nineties where the internet was this new thing. Now it's computer vision and applying that to everything is going to change. We're back the in world. the early eighties when mobile became, mobile computing became a thing. I yeah. got to be at the beginning of that revolution and it was life changing. So let's uh, rather than you and I geeking out about digital LIDAR, cause I could go there and the audience would probably kill us. I want to open it up to the audience for questions and see if there's any questions for Brad. Uh, along with all your skills in the computer world, where you're very good at business. You've done a very good job with your business. Where did you learn your business skills? Um, my parents have told me these stories of when I was a little kid. Um, and I, I feel like the seeds of entrepreneurship were already like planted way back then. So I remember, I, I, I've heard the story of my uncle had a, his wedding in Washington, D.C., and I was probably five or six years old. So I don't remember this. I remember like secondhand. Um, and we were going to park at a parking meter and they didn't have any change. And, uh, I was the only one with change. I had quarters and, uh, I recognized that supply and demand was a thing. I had quarters, they needed them. And so the value of a quarter was more than 25 cents. <laughs> so I sold them the quarters for, I think it was two or $3 a piece. Oh my gosh. My parents were not very amused, but, um, I, I mean, in retrospect, that was a very shrewd business move. So buy um, low, sell high came to you at an early age. Exactly. Uh, and I remember, you know, I tried to start an arcade in my basement, um, that one didn't work so well. There wasn't a lot of foot traffic going through my, my parents' front yard. Right. Um, 
I started a web design company when I was in junior high. Um, and that actually was kind of the genesis of all the computer stuff that I've been doing. So um, I've figured, I, I didn't know how to program, but um, I figured I could figure that out. And on the internet, nobody knows that you're 13. Uh, so I was on these web forums and I just put out there like, Hey, does anybody need a website done? And, uh, I started out doing it for free and very quickly started charging people for that. And, uh, that web design company all throughout high school ended up doing work for, um, companies like PAX TV. I did an online version of one of their game shows. Uh, I worked for a custom motorcycle company doing their website. I did a mortgage calculator for Charles Schwab when I was in high school. Um, did they know you were in high school? No. Uh, so I actually they got matched up with this. would have freaked out. Their compliance person would have freaked. Yeah. I, I got matched up with this guy in South Dakota who was really good at getting clients, and he would just farm out this work to other people. Sure. And I think he was charging like $200 an hour. He paid me $100 an hour. He made that $100 difference, and it worked out for everybody. <laughs> That's a riot. Going back to your apps and you update the content every day, uh, which is wonderful in one regard. But one, how does that keep people? From, how do you keep people from getting irritated if you're kind of bombarding them? Does it bother them, or is that what they're after? And I guess two is: is there any issue with I don't know if it's fraudulent or or how do you make sure it's kept in synchronization with what today really is today? Sure. Um, I think the first part of that question was on the technical side of things, right? Of how do we actually push those updates? Um, so, uh, most of our games are web-based, um, and so it's a lot easier to push updates on web-based stuff. Um, for our native mobile apps, we've actually built a system, um, uh, where we can pull updates from a server. Um, and then you asked about how do we prevent users from just changing the timestamp? Um, the content gating is done on the server side. And so even if the user sets their clock forward, um, they're not able to like jump ahead and get tomorrow's content today. Um, and then, to answer the question about um, how do we deal with um, our users and making sure that um, they're not getting bombarded, um, I think we just you know learned to. Well, in some ways, we've set their expectations that there's going to be a new egg every day, and so they know at seven o'clock p.m. our time or midnight London time, they need to sign on to play that day's content. Um, and I think that's something that they all really enjoy. I don't think. We've ever had anybody complaining about too much new content coming out. Um, where we do get complaints is um, when we release new features or especially when we release new um, products for them to buy in the game. Um, there can be some fatigue and burnout there. Um, and I, what we've kind of learned is we just need to like ignore a lot of the complaints uh, and look at the data and um, not necessarily listen to the people who are complaining because it doesn't matter what we do. We're always going to have a vocal minority of our users complaining about things. Um, I, I've used this analogy before, but like we could give out a, a brand new free car to everybody and we'd have people complain that they didn't like the brand that we gave them. And so um, just kind of being able to take a step back and not take that criticism personally and then look at like the data of like, well, okay, so people are complaining are they still using the app? Are they like, are they actually quitting when they threaten to quit the game or are they, you know, complaining and continuing to use it? And um, one of the challenges is, you know, we have this big subset of our users that we never hear from that are happy with the game. They've been playing every day for years and we don't know who they are. Um, and in some ways those are our best users because, you know, they're just happy with what we do and they don't see any need to complain. Um, and they're, they're just happily playing 
for years on end. Um, and we definitely have the vocal people on both sides, which um, managing a community has been something that I didn't realize how, uh, how much work and how frustrating that can be. Um, when you have any sort of community of people, you're going to have conflicts um, between users. And I, I think that that has been the frustrating thing is not necessarily when they're complaining about the game or complaining to us, but when they're complaining about each other and calling each other names and like those interpersonal issues. Um, we didn't know that 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 part of our role was going to be like playing a babysitter to grown adults. You know, I had a startup one time tell me that the best user in the world is the one they never heard of. And it took me a while to understand why they said that. But, you know, you can get lost chasing the edge of your user base to the, the person's the most vocal, the person that's has the most new ideas and, and very soon lose the majority of your base. Yeah, I guess I should uh, also add on to that, that we have many vocal users who are like super fans. And oh, sure. we love hearing from those people. We had a we had our 10th birthday party in Las Vegas and there were people who flew in for the day to Las Vegas just to meet the team because it's their favorite game that they've been playing forever. And, you know, they they thought that was an opportunity of a lifetime. I think that's called traction when people fly into your 10th anniversary party. Well, Brad Dwyer, thank you for being on Startup Stories. Yeah, it was great. Uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Startup Stories DSM podcast. Inspired by this startup story, visit dsmpartnership.com slash business resources to find upcoming events, videos, and other free resources dedicated to helping startups and entrepreneurs accelerate success in DSM USA. That's dsmpartnership.com slash business resources. Thanks for listening.